Hey, we're here with Ben Morrow, head roaster of Manhattan Cuff Roasters, and let's get to know him better. Ben, first of all, introduce yourself, and please tell us how your story with coffee began. Broad. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, like I started in coffee in 2007. Um, just working like most people, um, uh, I didn't start in like a Starbucks or something. I started in like a cafe, uh, bakery that, um, you know, roasted the, oh, sorry, like, uh, baked their own bread, roasted their own coffee, etc. And, um, you know, started as front of house, like most people do, um, you know, just selling like pastries or whatever. And, um, you know, we sold coffee and I always find that a little bit interesting at the time, you know, like, I think I was what, 18 and, um, you know, baristas also got paid more. So, I mean, uh, as a point of like making some more money so that I could, you know, maybe move out or do something else. Um, I looked at that as like a, a pretty strong opportunity to at least to do something at the time. And, um, yeah, I got on the espresso machine pretty quickly and um i was pretty good at it, um after you know work um but i was also interested in it i was willing to do the work um so i did that for a few years and then um you know obviously like there's only so much um you can learn or do in a given place and um so i started like working at other venues um and eventually i started uh Oh, there was actually like I, I was all right at latte art at the time um it's kind of like a requirement or at least in that time period it was uh, in melbourne and um yeah i saw like an advertisement in a in a in a newspaper that that they they put on the train called mx um which is like uh uh it's kind of like a public paper um <clears throat> anyway it was being held at St. Ali. And so I uh, called them up and I was like, Hey, can I get a, like a spot to, to compete? And, um, so I did and, uh, got a sweet first round knockout and, um, yeah, then I got given a really good opportunity from, um, someone who's like a pretty famous green buyer now, Lucy Ward. Um, you know, you see it pop up from time to time in like Brewster Mag, um, and stuff like that. Um, and she's really cool. Um, but yeah, at the time, like, you know, I got knocked out and she uh, came up to me afterwards and was just like, hey, like, do you want a job? <laughs> so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll have a job. Like, thanks. At the time, I think it was just like event work, just slinging coffees or whatever. But it was like, that was probably the first like proper transition into um, what what people at the time were calling specialty coffee um and this was also kind of like at that uh i mean this was like more than 10 years ago so um you know this was like the point where people were starting to use the third wave as like a marketing tool to get um customers interested in uh both more expensive coffees um but also more exotic tastes and products um and the saint ali group was just one of 
uh, a few roasteries that were offering um, stuff like that because I think it was like maybe from memory, it's like maybe 20 years ago, for example, like it was very difficult to get single farmer Colombian, for example, like before that it used to be a state coffee. And so you might be able to get like a, like a micro region, but you'd be unlikely to buy from a direct farmer unless you went there. Um, and that's all changed since then. Um, from there, I, uh, you know, I worked around, like I also like sort of did, uh, did work at other venues. I did like some cocktails. I did, you know, other, other coffee stuff at different companies. Then I came back and eventually I kind of like settled on, um, the St. Ollie group for, for a long period. I think it was like eight years I worked for them. Um, and I did a bunch of competitions. Um, of course, like, you know, when you start doing comp, uh, it doesn't mean you're good, <laughs> you know, like, uh, I, I failed so many times. Um, but, but, but what was really interesting is that, that when I did compete, I did score well, but I'd always get disqualified <laughs> because, because I wouldn't really take it too seriously. So I, there were, I think there were like two or three times that I had like a winning score and, um, and then through like probably laziness, I, uh, I lost um, from, from deducted points um, and penalties. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. Um, but eventually like, you know, I, I started taking it a bit more seriously and using it like, I mean, because you know, obviously there is no hierarchy to coffee and people use a lot of the competition stuff as like that. Um, it's kind of like the unspoken hierarchy. If you win a world championship, people are like, okay, we're going to take you seriously. Now. Um, and it can lead to like a lot of open opportunities. Uh, just look at any world champion in any class of competition. And you probably see that from that moment, um, they use it as a springboard to do something um, or at least anyone that was ready. Anyway, so like I did win a couple of competitions, like the the second places and third places and stuff. Um, obviously, got me a lot of attention. Um, and then you know, 2012, I started doing uh, like I think, yeah, that was when Instagram kind of came. It came out of like maybe 2011, um, and a friend of mine was using it, and he was just like, you know, I've got like 500 followers, man. 500 people watch what I do. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm not really into it. And he's just like, yeah, well, that's because you're not popular anyway. So and I'm like, well, fuck you. I'm going to, I'm going to get Instagram. <laughs> I'll have more followers than you, asshole. Um, and now you do. Oh, I very much do. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Blair. But uh, yeah, I hope he's doing all right. Like uh yeah, those are different times and, um, you know, like latte art coming onto like Instagram was like, you know, something is very visual, you know, it's, it's not the same as like what it is now. Like, you know, back then it was just like people just, I suppose it's probably closer to what TikTok is now. Um, maybe, um, it was a simpler platform. Um, now like Instagram is riddled with like, you know, marketing and, uh intentional media and stuff and all i was doing was just just having fun 
Um, and I still do, like I still treat it that way. Anyway, so uh, yeah, and then I basically, I, you know, eventually, like I was getting pretty tired of doing competitions. I think I'd done it for like seven years. Um, so I wrote up um, this like golden mile list. Uh, I think there were like uh, maybe like 80 global competitions. Um, which, which collectively had a prize pool of like $200,000. And I was like, I went to my boss and I was just like, here are all of the major competitions in the world that make money. And, um, and I'm pretty confident that, that we could win, uh, like a few of them if, if we did them all. And he was just like, do you think you can win? And I was like, yeah, I can win. Um, and so we did, we did a lot of them. I don't, we, I didn't do all of them. Um, we just cut a deal together. Like he would, um, you know, grace me with like flights, accommodation and stuff. And then we would share the winnings, which, which, which was really cool. You know, cause like, there's no way that I could fly, fly everywhere on a barista wage or whatever. Um, and of course, like from his perspective, it gives him marketing, etc. You know, I'd always take our coffee. And uh, yeah, so then, like I did, uh, I won a bunch of stuff in China, um, competed there a few times. Uh, Victoria, I, I, I also won like five or six competitions in a row. Um, then I won the, yeah, the state latte art championship and the national latte art championship. I went to the world, so I came sixth. Um, but before that in LA, oh, sorry, uh, in New York, I won, uh, the, uh, New York, the first New York masters championship, um, which, which wasn't easy as well. Like I competed against John Gordon one round, brief Bassett, um, the year before I came top four in the first, uh, London coffee masters championship, which also included a lot of famous, um, baristas like Patrick from April coffee uh and who else was it a lot of people went on to like start their own roasteries and stuff and after new york so i did new york and then i did the world latte art championship and then i flew to milan to do a job and then i went to london to compete in the next uh coffee masters championship which i won as well so i won two of those and um yeah so i'm the only person to ever do that that's crazy. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, like I kind of, I think I, at that point I was just like, all right, I'm pretty tired of competition. <laughs> so, um, you know, I uh, went back to Australia and, uh, you know, worked for a bit and, you know, part of like during along the way, I met Esther who, um, you know, I live with and she's my girlfriend and also my uh, business partner and um yeah so like i think my boss at the time was just like hey like he just called me up out of the blue and he's like hey do you want to like what do you want to do like do you want to stay do you like what do you just like you know what's your plan <laughs> and i just said to him like, i'm probably just gonna go to europe man <laughs> and he was like okay cool no worries um how about you just give us like i don't know a couple months like when you decide that you're ready and um, we'll just keep you in the company doing whatever you need to do or just like swing coffee or something, make up some cash or whatever you want. 
and um you know they gave me a really lovely send-off um which was you know like funny and also really lovely and uh moved to europe um you know and yeah now i'm here and it took me like a couple of years to like figure out what i was going to do well one year i think um and yeah so now i have a roastery and it's called manhattan coffee roasters so you won a lot of competitions do you have any advice for someone who is starting uh um so if you want to if you want to do well in comp there's like only a few things you really need to have a really strong understanding of what the rules are because it doesn't matter what what coffee you bring or whatever like you know you can bring like the best geisha in the world or whatever that doesn't mean you win because there's always more rules than just bringing a really good coffee um you know whether it's etiquette or um like some i mean i've been in competitions where flair was a like an actual thing you know flair so like you know it, and then in a lot of coffee comps there's like multipliers for like specific things as well really focus on those because um you know most competitors don't get six in a category for anything ever um so but if you got a six in a multiplier and you get like a three in something else well the multiplier probably means more you know it'll really bump you up as long as you get it um even if it's a five or a four and a half if it's a times four that's pretty good you know that's a good start um so yeah like you know just look at the rules really understand them if you don't understand them find someone that's done competition before and ask them most uh most champions would be like happy to to talk about um you know like what what's important um and in most countries there's there's a barista champion that that probably knows at least more than you and generally they're like pretty pretty re you know pretty reasonable like you know people ask me sometimes like what i think and um yeah i just tell them like <laughs> sometimes like i can be a little bit abrupt but it's fair would you um, say that yeah. like knowing all the rules and everything you just said is the hardest part of competing or i would say it's the easiest part because <laughs> um because uh it's there like you're given it you know whereas like it doesn't give you like uh the thing with competition like where it's like long standing competitors expectation um you know that kind of stuff like genuine genuine politics in sort of behind, like closed doors with the judges etc you don't have understanding of that if you're a first time competitor and honestly i believe it comes into play often um you know obviously someone that's competed for 10 years they've got that 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 supersedes themselves from so many performances will probably have strong influence on a judge um but if you're a first time competitor and you you just nail it so well because it's out of the blue you're just as likely to win um yeah so so you don't need to know all of the like the backdoor stuff um but you should should easily get the rule set together and the wording is somewhat complicated um 
in in a lot of competitions so you know whoever's sending you the rules um whichever head judge or whatever um or whoever is from the sca that um gives them to you clarify them you know if you don't understand them just be like this sentence does not make sense and then through that you also learn other stuff like what are the like the gray areas of a competition like you know can you know it's like this sentence doesn't really mean anything does that mean i can do this and a lot of the times it's like well if it makes sense sure <laughs> um which makes for a more exciting routine um so just just go out and learn that stuff and yeah do it you said that in the beginning you didn't take too serious the competition can you give us some examples of penalties that you got? It's very easy to know what the penalties are um, because a lot of the times they're written into the rules. So for example, time, if you go over time and certain competitions, it could be one point a second. Um, in the past, it was less, uh, you know, like I think it was in 2014, I think it was like, two points every 30 seconds, but disqualification after a minute. Um, <clears throat> so it's like, yeah, you could go, you could go over the limit, no worries, and you won't, you won't be penalized much. But if you go over a minute, you're out. Um, and it's all there, you know, it's all just written there. So go out, read it, um, really, really dive deep into the rules and, and know every single page. Um, you don't have to be like a rules lawyer or whatever, but just know where the points can be gained and the points will be lost. Those are the most important things. Other than that, just go out and have fun, <laughs> you know, bring something that you like, um, do something cool. You know, if you think it's, if you, if you like, then it's probably good. You took a path that is the dream of a lot of people. You moved from being a barista to becoming the owner of a roastery and doing really, really good with this roastery. Can you tell us a little bit more about how was this transition for you? Um, well, I'm lucky. Um, I've had a lot of um, coffee that has been uh, like, like, uh, like a step forward at some point in time for different reasons. Um, whether it's like progressive roasting or um, like exotic varieties that never existed. Um, I drank like 10 years worth of the BOP, uh, the best of Panama. So like the first time I went to Panama, I was like, oh, I know all of these coffees, <laughs> which was um, really interesting, <laughs> you know, because like Panama is pretty small. So like it's, you know, when you, when you know the coffee, then it's like you, you might not you know, not always, you know, the farmer, but then you meet them and you're just like, oh, what farm do you know? Oh, sorry, own. And they're like, oh yeah, I, like, I mean, I do Abu Cafe. And it's like, oh yeah, I know that. Yeah, your coffee's yum, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, it's also the problem with coffee as well. There's no vintage either. So you have to kind of live through it to, to be like, hey, remember that harvest you did in 2000 and like 2010? That was the best work you've ever done. Like, but why? You know, like then you can ask it because they'll probably remember it as well, like being like a bit more special. Um, 
yeah, so in that sense, um, I'm very lucky because um, both I know what, what I want from a roast as well as what coffees I like. Um, whereas a lot of people that start roasting might start with without that background. Like they might know it from say, uh, uh, like other coffee roasteries or um, drinking, yeah, through some, some, some other means, or maybe they want to start early and, 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 you know, do that journey through the roastery as well. Um, whereas for me, I'm always like, kind of like, I know exactly what I want. I just need to figure out how, um, more than anything else, which makes it, make, makes it much easier, um, for me because I know when, um, it's not what I want. Um, and why the why part is probably the most important bit. Most important. Because <laughs> at least I can figure it out, <laughs> you know? Uh, so yeah, there's not like a secret formula or a recipe, but what do you think makes a roastery stands out from others? Oh, in this day and age, oh, I don't know, man. There could be lots of things. Um, shock value, maybe. Um, it's hard to say as well, like because also like through modern like sort of social media marketing can also get quite quite popular um so yeah it's it's very hard to know um for me at least or at least with our brand like i really believe in the like the genuine nature of what we do um you know i really believe that our like you know moral compass is in the right direction um and that we have strong ethos and like beliefs about what what is the right thing to do in coffee? Um, whether it's, you know, obviously like we buy quite expensive coffee as well. Um, so in one sense, like, yeah, like those, those coffee lots like do need to reach the mark. Um, and then the opposite way as well, where it's like, if it's a less expensive coffee and it, it supersedes um, its value, then it should be rewarded because it's better than um, what you would pay that money for. And so in that respect, I think that that like that that is sort of the way at least I think that things should operate. Um, and I, I think that people definitely can feel that in our brand. <laughs> You know, like the coffees are very good and they match um, what you pay for, um, you know. So um, at least for us, that's that's what I think is really important. Um, I can't really speak for all the other roasteries that to, because each one kind of has their own strategy in a market that is heavily flooded with, um, you know, more and more roaster, roasteries like every week. You know, the, the European market is becoming very fragmented. Um, anyone can buy like a cheap two kilo, maybe 500 gram roaster and start a brand. Um, it's very easy to do. Um, but it doesn't mean that you know, like what is good or bad. Um, or yeah, like, you know, obviously starting small is very difficult as well um, to, to do the right thing as well, because you have so, so little impact. 
And um, of course I know that as well because I started there too. Um, you know, like anyone that starts a roastery will probably have to buy from a trader. You, it's the only way. <laughs> like how else are you supposed to get coffee? Because <laughs> um, you can't export a container, for example. Um, so yeah, like, um, yeah, I can't really speak for the other roasteries um, and, and, and what makes them special um, or stand out in the market. Um, it could be branding. It could be, yeah, like a, like a social media strategy. It could be like also ethos, um, blockchain, anything um, that makes them different. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, I can only speak for myself, really. All of those things exist, though. I love how you pointed out that most of the times it's not only about great coffees. Uh, there is a lot, a lot of marketing. There is a lot of business into it that people maybe just don't think that much about it when they just think about starting a roastery. And this is actually really, really important things to considerate. Yeah, so you're totally right. Um, it's not always the same thing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's very hard to identify um, what makes them all special. Um, and then also, you know, For example, like a lot of people like that, you know, a lot of companies, um, you know, maybe their, their strategy is less uh, honorable, you know, like then perhaps they like play into the trope of specialty coffee, for example, like it, it's very easy to say that you pay four times market price. Well, market price is pretty poor. Um, it's lower than the value of producing coffee. Um, for example. So it's very easy to say if you buy the cheapest specialty grade lot, and it would probably wouldn't even be specialty grade, it would just be called specialty something. Um, it'd be very easy if it was like four euros to a kilo from a trader to say that that coffee is four times like commercial coffee market price, but it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you know, it, yeah, sure. Like at the time, um, So yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's a very weird um, history for that because everyone has a different strategy behind the way they do things. Does, it, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, a lot of sense actually. So before you talk a little bit about Panama and the relationship that you have with producers, and this is really, really amazing. Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, let's stick, let's stick to Brazil. Like, I mean, So, so I have relationships in Panama um, are, are pretty strong because Panamanian coffee is quite popular, I think, at, at least in the, in the price range um, that they often sell their highest grade coffees in. Um, and I mean, you know, there's no doubts about the fact that they're delicious um, and that's why we sell them. Um, And I have a lot of strong memories of a lot of those coffees too through my career. So I have a lot of interest in, in Panamanian coffee. Um, likewise, likewise with uh, other, other countries too, like Colombia and Ethiopia. Um, I have a lot of nostalgia when I, when I see like certain stations in Ethiopia, for example. Um, as for Brazil, um, well, of course, like, um, I'd never heard of Sao Sebastiano Vianta uh, before, but um, 
that's the thing with Brazil, right? Like it's pretty big. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that make coffee. Um, and of course I wouldn't know all the producers. I do know a lot of famous houses um, in Brazil, um, obviously with the COE, a lot of COE coffee ends up in Australia. I think, uh, I think I managed to have like COE number one and two, like four or five years in a row. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that they, you know, it doesn't mean much. Like it's just a green competition, right? Um, and of course, like export has trade, oh, sorry, uh, changed um, a lot in Australia as well. Like, you know, uh, for example, containers would take almost a year to get through at one point. And now that, that has changed as well. So, um, you know, coffees have also tasted different um, over time. Um, but back to, like, you know, Brazil, um, yeah, of course, like, you know, you introduced me to like Inesio's coffee um, and Inesio himself. And yeah, like his coffee's awesome. Um, and yeah, I think that he, like, what, what, what his mission is, is very aligned to what I think is good. Um, and also, I think the quality that he's driving in that, that region um, is probably paramount to, to lifting a lot of those farmers out of, you know, a situation that they, they, they can't do better in um, without having maybe export market. Because obviously, local market is very difficult as well. Um, yeah. And... I, I really like enjoy working with an ACO and I think he, he also knows that I feel the same way, like very strongly about um, his mission and um, making coffee better there um, because, you know, the people work very hard um, and you can tell because the coffee quality is very high. Um, so, yeah. I remember the, the time that I first cupped the coffee that you bought from Silvio. And I saw that it was below 600 meters. And of course, I didn't have high expectations on that coffee. But when I cupped it, it was just crazy. So this is something that, that called out my attention. That I feel like from now on, we have to have like no expectations about coffee. Because it, the, the, the industry is just changing. Yeah, I think that's kind of like where coffee is kind of steering, or especially coffee at least, is kind of steering towards where people are less uh, less interested in uh, like accredited, um, dictated specialty like requi uh, requirements. Um, for example, like technically, especially coffee is grown above 1000 meters well this isn't and it's just as good like so what's stopping me from doing it anywhere else like you know like how do i then you know grapple with that idea that a coffee can deliver the same flavor experience um as a high altitude coffee if i can just grow it at sea level um does that mean it's not specialty coffee? No. Like, so I think we're kind of getting to like slowly getting to the point where, well, people will probably say, okay, that 
idea of special coffee, something that is more unique, um, has less boundaries as long as it performs in a certain way um, that can be defined as a better product than something that that doesn't. Um, so yeah, like uh, I think that's where we'll, we'll probably. I mean, if I was going to make a prediction, it's probably going to be like two, three years, and people will say that. We'll just be like, there is no boundaries on specialty coffee. It can be anywhere. It just matters how much you care and how much work you do. So, do you have any other prediction or expectations for the following years? Uh, the market's going to get real, real crazy. Two years, I reckon. Like, so one, there's the fragmenting of roasteries. Um, which I talked about earlier. Um, but two, um, producers are getting very adventurous, making a lot of different products, um, but no one really knows what they're doing. <laughs> so you end up with like this really like huge mix of variable products and not a lot of stable products. So, um, you know, for example, like, Colombian washed coffee is becoming less produced. I mean, it's still huge, but it's like just, it's slowly coming down. The exotic market is becoming very big. Um, and that's honestly probably just because of like the 2006 auction of Geisha in Panama. You know, the original big price coffee. I don't think it was even that big compared to like the prices that people ask for now. Um, but because there's like this idea that if you create the next geisha, people are just striving to, to find that next thing that, that is the next step. And then obviously, um, the easiest way to affect your coffee is to change the fermentation method. Um, so that's like a quick fix for a different product. Um, because you obviously have to wait like at least four or five years for your geisha to grow. And then you have geisha, but because everyone's already planted it, then it's everywhere. <laughs> you know, by the time that we this point is the market is going to be flooded with geisha. And then how do you value it? Right. Because it has no value if you can't sell it, um, which is going to be really weird. And then because then you would have like this weird dichotomy between like anywhere in the world that has geisha, which, which is almost everywhere now. Um, how do you, you know, separate them by quality. Um, of course, there's like a whole bunch of other things to it as well. Orgasia is not the same as sub submutations. There's constant changes in the genetic material that makes the plant grow um, based on like, you know, what kind of soil deficits you have and what it will do when it gets there. And then you could also selectively breed it too which makes it different. And that could give you a point of difference. Um, for example, there's not many people that have isolated bronze tip. Um, although I do know a few people that have it, uh, there's not many people that have Geisha Amarillo, maybe like three or four. Um, and the same with like Cedra and, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, so yeah, for that reason, because all of this happened maybe what, maybe eight, nine years ago, where people started paying attention to it and saying, hey, maybe we can 
up our product by you know investing in long long period time um to get like that market is going to get really really wacky really soon you know um there'll be every method known to men and women at that time you know like the other day i heard about a process called blue ice what is blue ice well actually i do know what it is now i'm curious so what is this process this blue ice process it's just a like 14 degrees or less anaerobic fermentation for any period of time blue ice there you go put it in a river just put the tank in a river it'll be less than 14 degrees i actually saw one of those coffees on the river yeah yeah i know i've seen it as well like i know i know bruno does it but he has like an irrigation system that runs around the uh yeah the tanks but the thing is like that's only one part of the tank like it's not fully submerged so what does that mean um there's a lot of yeah this is what i'm saying is that there's a lot of people like trying lots of stuff of course none of it's really bad and none of it's really great because the replicatability is very uh like hard to do like you might do like anaerobic process one time and have like a really great outcome and you know you just started it for the first time and you're like fuck this this is awesome and then you might do it the next year or next season and then it's not as good so i think it's really more like the like people try stuff but they don't want to like do the works to 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 figure out why um uh, which i think is the most important thing i see that every day they produce amazing coffee but they are not going to be able to replicate that for the next year and that's so bad because they have some high expectations and unfortunately next year may not be as good as this year because this is a process that's not easily it's not easy to reproduce it so it's a, it's yeah it's a very weird time so I, i think what we'll have is like for the next two years we'll have like this weird crazy market and people will realize that it's flooded and then i'll probably just like the wine industry they'll probably be like okay this is silly i'm going to go back to making natural products that taste very good and work very hard to make them good and um then you'll have maybe in a 5 10 year period you'll probably have like a 50-50 where or even not like where people will probably consistently do very very good um traditionals but on commission they can do anything you want so if there's like a specific style and you know what it is you can be like hey i really like your coffee i also want to do this um then most like the at that point because you know information is spreading so quickly they'll, they'll probably say sure yeah i mean i'll do it but you know you're going to take the commission um or he's going to take or her is going to take your commission for you to do it to to get that done um because the outcomes are so inconsistent it would be amazing to have a market like that you just decided what process you would like and you just ordered it it already it already exists i already do it it's in yeah. colombia 
like and most most farmers if you can describe it well enough they'll do it but they'll ask for commission because no one knows right like you you, you can't know um that's why i also encourage it like uh some level of experimentation to see the change or at least just be like okay well like my product can go from like washed quality to here and then like this is the range and i know why and then you can say okay well i can offer all that stuff i'm still going to do washed but here are the products i can do that is awesome yeah so that's, that's where it's heading <laughs> why not so talking a little bit about your sample roasting profile, I know that you don't change the the profile that you you sample roast, and I would love to hear why. Uh, so I roast on an Ikawa sample roaster. Um, it's a V two, I believe, and um, basically um, the idea of the Ikawa is that it's a profiling system. So like if you have a probat or whatever, like you can make a profile on um, on like a, like, a, like a chart and the uh, software will attempt to track the probe along the line you create, which is cool. Like, you know, that's really good. But the thing is, it's not a drum roaster. Um, it's a fluid bed roaster, which means that um, if you make a profile for a drum roaster, it doesn't like translate into that style of roast, like that 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 energy transfer of an Akawa. So anyone that does that is probably fooling themselves if if they think um, what is happening is the same as the energy transfer from a conduction roaster, for example. Well, I mean like conduction and convective depending. Um, so anyway, like, I mean, if you look at fluidized bed roasters and like the way that like energy is transferred and how, um, you know, because it's um, basically sitting in the fluid um, being hot air, um, it stands to reason that you would just make it the same temperature all the time why not because if you're talking about like the beans like heating up dehydrating 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 and then getting to a point where it actually would cook um, because that's what roasting is it's just high speed dehydration so that the the cell is dry enough that it can actually start converting materials um yeah it stands to reason that you would just set it to 200 and it would just evaporate. And, and that curve looks very similar to like what you would want from a drum roaster. It's just that there's a lot of other factors to a drum roaster um, that you can't see. It doesn't matter how many probes you have, like there's a lot of like energy leaking in every direction. And, um, you know, like there's a lot of like hot air, there's a lot of hot air spikes and troughs and uh, energy suction um, and energy loss. Um, within a drum and uh, like through airflow issues and changes in pressure from from how much coffee you have in depending whereas like all of that stuff doesn't matter in a fluidized bed roaster because um, it's basically just however big 
the, the load is, like the green, that air there, that's all that matters. So that's only 50 grams in an Akawa, <laughs> you know? So just, um, anyway, so the profile is basically just like a straight line um, from the charge point. It's just set at 200 for um, a certain length of time. Um, I sort of, uh, like I've applied it in high altitude, low altitude, below sea level, above sea level, you know, and um, some of those, like basically all you have to do, um, you might have to lengthen or shorten a roast depending on where you are. Um, but the biggest one is that you might wanna, you just change like the total energy, which is just where that line sits. Now, just, just to be clear, that's a horizontal line, like, like this, um, like this. Um, so basically, you think about it just like an energy slider. If you need, if the coffee at 200 degrees over like five and a half minutes is not developed or will not dissolve, then the problem is that there's not enough energy to convert the materials of that coffee into high soluble material. And so you just go up one degree. <laughs> or it's, it's, too, it's too soluble um, and or overdeveloped in the sense that it has like tainted roasty flavors and you just go down a degree. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Like, it'll be better roasting than, than, than any like drum roaster you'll taste um, because you can very easily change it and it doesn't cost you much in the sense of green um, or time. Um, all you have to do is just do it once, taste the first one, be like, is this a developed coffee in the sense that, is it fully realized in flavor um, or is it scorched? Or like, is there, there flavors here that don't taste like that thing? Whether it be under development, like straw, grassy, um, you can always see it in the cupping bowl that it's like a very sort of milky brown color. If it's doing that, then it's not solving into the water. Um, if it's that kind of like darker, um, not black, but like still with, with some tinges of color, that's, that's developed, like it's solving into water. Um, so if you get that, then you're probably close. And then you taste it and you're just like, okay, well, you know, like this is developed. Um, and the thing with sample roasting it as well, it's like, you're not going to spend time sample roasting it to make it the best coffee in the world. You just want to like a quick eye into what the coffee is. So you can say, okay, the sample is, is developed. It tastes good. Um, if I worked on it, it would taste really, really good. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the whole point. Like it saves me heaps of time. I never change it. I just turn it on. And um, those roasts rule. So uh, yeah, I'll send you the profile if you want to stick it on something. If anyone has it, this is crazy. Really, really nice. And they're wow. and they're they're better than any like roasted sample I've received from any company. Um, I don't know, man. Like it, you know. That's like also like you know. It also saves you a lot of time. Yeah. Well, once you've dialed it in, like I'm not saying that it works in every situation. Like I said. Things are different at different altitudes um, because um, water vapor release is different. 
um, which is fine. Um, you just need to dial in the length of the roast and what temperature to uh, achieve good development. Um, like example, I think at 1200 meters, I was finding like a four and a half minute roast at 198. Um, that was, yeah, 1200 meters above sea level. That worked really well. Um, but it also could be, and I don't know this for certain because um, a lot of the coffees that we were roasting were very fresh off milling and not rested. And so, you know, that could also come into play. I, I'm not sure. I would have to do it for a couple of seasons to know, to be able to say, okay, well, if this is the date on that, on that mill, like milling of this green, then we should wait versus, you know, like straight off the patio. <laughs> I don't know if that would be different. So, I, um, yeah. <laughs> but um, once you dial it in, at least it's consistent. It's way more consistent than someone roasting it on a on a drum roaster. Yeah, yeah. It just makes sense. It just makes sense. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? This is your time. Go ahead. Um. Not really. No, I I think. Uh, besides that, you know, like. Uh, Keep an open mind. Um, things are changing, and you know, try stuff. It's cool. Like, um, and uh, yeah, give give it a shot. Make make some specialty coffee. You know, if you have a four hundred meter above sea level farm, like, you know, just give it a go. See what happens. <laughs> Ask Silvio. He he knows. It works. <laughs> It works, yeah. Oh, geez, like the Claudio's coffee. My God. Ah, oh, I want it. I I can't wait for that container. It's going to arrive soon, man. No worries. Yeah, I keep it next to the roaster, the green sample. I just smell it from time to time. It still smells like pineapples. It's the best. Yeah, I mean, I fooled people. I they 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 like you know I sent it to some friends and they were like, "What is this Ethiopian?" I'm like, Brazil. And they were like, really? And I'm just like, 600 meters above sea level? And they're just like, what? Right. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's right. How's your brain? <laughs> that's why I love coffee, dude. The rules just doesn't exist. Well, I, I mean, it does, though. Like, you know, I think, like, for example, like, you know, Anacio, Claudio, um, Silvio, they all pick very high bricks because just yeah, like yeah, the yeah. circumstance of their, their that specific variety and that soil, the conditions of the the soil itself, and also like weather, you know, they got it pretty good. They can get really high bricks on their coffee. Um, that doesn't mean that it's going to be awesome, but it means that it's a good start to process a coffee, to dry a coffee, and make it taste like that plant. Um, because not many places in the world you will get that kind of bricks load. Um, I think a year ago, like Panama was doing like 30. Oh, I think they were doing like 35, 36 bricks, but Sheila, like just from that harvest. Um, and specific varietals as well that were taking well to it. So it's all like kind of you know, a little bit of everything, but, um, you know, if they can, if they consistently get like 28 plus, then, then that's the right plant in that, that biosphere. 
um, to, to start with. Um, of course, you don't know them all, so, and you haven't planted them all, so you don't know which one is going to perform the best. Um, but at least you've got a good starting platform to, to say, okay, I can wait for the cherry to be at like a certain level and say, okay, we will pick all of this type now and see how it goes and put in the effort and see what it can do. And then from there, you can say, all right, it performed well, we'll do it again. Um, and that's just like, you know, the natural progress of learning things. And you get to take that home and try it again. And, you know, hey, like if it's really good, I'll buy it. There you go. Just go ahead and try it. Yeah, just give it a shot. Exactly. Like, I mean, just, all, but also like, you know, if you're committed to like a certain type of bulk, just, you can do that, but just like separate a little bit to see if you can do like a little bit more with what you have. Um, you know, never overreach and do it all and have it not work out. Otherwise, yeah, my pleasure. So thank you very much for being here with us. It's an honor to have you as our first guest in our podcast. So thank you very much. Thanks, uh, thanks for hanging out in my kitchen. It was great. It was great. Yeah, no worries. I just wish I had a beer like you. But... Yeah. What, what time is it in Brazil? Is it, is it like one o'clock? Two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. I'm still in my working hours. Well, uh -huh. I'm my own <laughs> boss. So, uh, yeah, I mean, what? Jeez, it must be like. Good point. Good point. Seven, seven or 8 p.m. now. But uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me on. 